I'm reading from Genesis chapter 14, from verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shabeh, that is, the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Ana, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Well, like I said, we are back uh, after a short hiatus in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and uh, we haven't read, but you'll see why in a moment. But if you have your Bibles, keep Hebrews 7 uh, in front of you. Well, the cameo is becoming a well-used and favorite device in film and TV program at the moment. You know, a cameo where someone really famous, pops up in another film or television program, not for any length of time or in a main role or even in a way that affects the story in any way, but often in just a walk-on, blink-and-you-miss-it kind of way. Of course, the king of the cameo was Stan Lee. Uh, creative of many of the characters in Marvel Comics. And when they started making movies out of his characters, Stan Lee started popping up at random times in his films. He made, in his life, 60 cameos in different Marvel movies across various studios and such. Uh, there are uh, a few of the times he just popped up in the movies. He, he appeared as a hot dog vendor, a security guard, truck driver, hairdresser, and my favorite credit of his was Guy Shouting Out of Window. So he made that, that appearance. Well, at first glance, the person we are thinking about today seems to have no more than a cameo appearance in the Bible. Melchizedek appears only once in those few verses that Vicky read to us from Abraham's story. He's then mentioned in Psalm 110 once, the psalm we started with this morning, 
and these few references we've come across his name in the book of Hebrews. By the end of today, we would have read every mention of Melchizedek in Scripture. Yet the writer to the Hebrews wants to tell us that Melchizedek is more than a bit-part character in the story of the Bible. We've said for weeks, he's been eager, dying to get to this point, to start exploring the importance of this character. So we finally come to Hebrews chapter 7. Now we've already covered some pretty hard stuff in the book of Hebrews. Actually, when we said we were going to look at Hebrews, it's particularly some passages like the one we come to today that people struggle with. But there is wonderful stuff in here for us today. And as we've come to expect from the writer of the Hebrews, it's all very methodical and worked through. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to work through the passage of chapter 7 and see why this character Melchizedek is so important to our understanding. So we're going to read the chapter as we go through this morning. I'm going to start a couple of verses earlier at chapter 6, verse 19. Uh, and we'll read some. 6.19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the Lord to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Well, these first few verses of chapter 7 are really a commentary on the account that Vicky read to us from Genesis. There we saw Abraham rescuing Lot from enemy kings. On Abraham's return, we see the conversation with the king of Sodom, on whose behalf he was fighting for. And Abraham is not willing to take any of the spoils of war that he is owed. In the middle of that, that's when Melchizedek turns up, gives bread and wine to Abraham and his men, and blesses them. Abraham, in return, gives a tithe of 10% to Melchizedek, and just like that, 
The story returns to the conversation with the king of Sodom, and that's it for the narrative of Melchizedek in the whole of the Bible. So who then is this mystery man? What do we know? Well, this one in our passage tells us that he is king of Salem. Salem, a pretty popular place name at the time, uh, but where the area they're in in Genesis has made Lenny, made Lenny to believe, led many to believe that we might actually be talking about Jerusalem here. Anyway, wherever it is, he's king of it. But we're also told that he is a priest, priest of the Most High. Hebrews gives us more insight, telling us what his name means. Melchizedek itself translates as king of righteousness. And king of Salem translates as king of peace. He is therefore the king of righteousness and of peace. Now when we thought of priests in the book of Hebrews in earlier chapters, we've had to do a bit of quite a bit of filling in because we've said the concept of priesthood isn't over familiar to us. But for the Jewish readers, we said this was bread and butter. Priesthood was great. They were all over this. But not this priest. Not Melchizedek. The original converted Jewish readers would have already been thinking this was strange. This was not what they were used to. To be both a king and a priest was unheard of. More than that, it was unacceptable. Remember their first king, Saul? He wasn't the best. He did a lot of things wrong, did Saul. But what sealed his fate? It was when he wouldn't wait for Samuel to come and offer sacrifices, and he did it himself. Saul tried to be both king and priest, and it was unacceptable. Now for Israel, those two were separate roles, and never the two would meet. So what we already know about Melchizedek didn't fit their picture of priesthood. But just as important to the author of Hebrews is what we don't know about him. Everything else, really. But particularly his origins. Verse 3, if you've got your Bibles open, he is without father, mother, genealogy, beginning of days, no end of life. Now is the writer suggesting that Melchizedek didn't have parents and, and he didn't die? Well, some have followed that conclusion to say Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate image of Jesus. I don't think you have to follow that route, though. The writer here is making the point that we know nothing about Melchizedek's origins, nothing about his genealogy. There was no start or finish date to his priesthood that we know about, and no succession plan about who would come next after Melchizedek. And that's the point the author wants to make, I think. We don't know these things because they weren't important to his priesthood. Who his parents were were irrelevant to the role that he took. And this would have been completely shocking to the Jewish reader. Because for them, for their priests, genealogy was everything. 
the priesthood was completely founded on this. Priests in Israel had to come from the tribe of Levi, non-negotiable. Every priest had to show that they had directed, uh, they were descended directly from Aaron. And records were kept to make sure you could do that. We see that in the book of Ezra. And in the book of Nehemiah, we see if you couldn't trace your line back, then you didn't get the job. And there was always succession. When one priest died, the son or next in line were ready to take on the role. If you really wanted to, you could look up history books and through the Bible and you can follow 84 high priests from Aaron all the way through to the destruction of the temple. But then there's Melchizedek. Here we have this king priest who doesn't tick any of the usual boxes for priesthood. And perhaps the Jewish reader would conclude then, well, this Melchizedek should be discounted or discredited. But the writer to the Hebrews does the opposite and says, he's better. What's his argument? Look at verse 4. He says he must be better because Abraham gives him tithes. Abraham who was up there with Moses as the big guy, father of Israel, father of all, the one to whom the promises were given that we were talking about earlier. Yet here, Abraham is tithing to Melchizedek. More than that, Melchizedek is blessing Abraham. And the writer says it is the superior who blesses the inferior. And then this is where it does go a little bit funny. Verse 9, the writer says, You could say Levi himself tithed to Melchizedek because he was in the loins of Abraham when they met. Now, any mention of loins makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? But <laughs> and that verse is particularly hard to understand in our culture. But you have to think of a culture that holds ancestry much higher. Sometimes our culture is tempted to think that every generation is getting better. Every generation is an improvement on the last. But back then, that was unthinkable. You were never better than your ancestors. So Levi was less than Abraham, and Abraham was less than Melchizedek, so therefore Levi was less than Melchizedek. Still with me? Stick with it. There's good stuff to come. <laughs> so we move on. Let's read on. Verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For where there is a change in the priesthood, there is ne necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, 
but by the power of an undestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness, of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And this is what the writer has been building to. Jesus is our high priest. But he's not like any priest the readers know. No, out of those 84 priests that the Jewish people had had, some were good. Plenty of them were downright awful. But Jesus wasn't just the best of that bunch. No, Jesus is in a different league. Jesus is not part of the Levitical priesthood. He's something new. A priest like Melchizedek. Or more accurately, Melchizedek was a priest like Jesus would be. Melchizedek was a signpost to the greater that was coming. This theme will keep coming up over the next few weeks, that the Jewish systems themselves were signposts pointing forward. They were never in and of themselves meant to be it. Verse 11 says if the Levitical priesthood could have made things perfect, well, you wouldn't need any other priest. But of course, they couldn't. The priests themselves were sinful, and then they would die, and they would constantly need to be replaced. So we didn't need another priest like those from Aaron. We needed something brand new. Or something very old from before the time of the Levitical priesthood. We needed a Melchizedekian, if that's a word, (laughs) a Melchizedekian priest. And here we see Jesus. The writer goes into great detail to say how Jesus wasn't a normal priest. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Verse 14, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, the kingly line. Jesus is the promised king of David who will sit on David's throne forever, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's Jesus. He is king. And the signposts were there too from Melchizedek. Did you see it? Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And Jesus was promised. Jeremiah promised that the one who would come to save would be the Lord, our righteousness. Melchizedek was called the king of peace. And perhaps the words of the prophecy of Isaiah are still ringing in your ears after Christmas. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, 
The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here is Jesus, that wonderful King Jesus. King of righteousness, King of peace. But the author wants to say he's king, but he's also priest. Not because, verse 16 says, it's a legal requirement based on his genealogy or his inheritance, based on his family name, but by oath. God said, you are a king, a priest according to that of the order of Melchizedek forever. Not because of anything else other than who he was. God himself, not on the legalities of the law, but because the living word lived amongst us. Jesus is the king and the high priest. So why is that better? Why is that better for them and better for us? Well, let's finish the chapter off, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Because the old system couldn't ultimately succeed. The priests couldn't make ultimate peace between people and God. But Jesus can. He is the true Melchizedek, the real priest king who is eternal. His priesthood will not end. He intercedes for us. He is perfect and he is exalted and the writer will then pick all this for us in the next few chapters that we'll look at in the next few weeks but the point the writer wants to make to us here today is this who do you want as your priest verse 28 a Levitical priest in their weakness or a son made perfect forever and that's the crescendo of this passage. That's the big reveal. The king priest is the son. The king priest is the son. And that's supposed to transport us straight back to chapter 1 and verse 1. 
In the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And that's what the author wants us to see. It's all about the son. The son, the heir of all things, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the savior seated at the right hand of God, the one who is better than the prophets, than angels, than Moses, than Joshua, the one whose throne will last forever. God has appointed his son as your priest forever. And that's what he's saying to these first readers, struggling under hardship, tempted to go back to the old way of doing things. The author says, don't do it. Don't go back to earthly priests who fail. Jesus is the guarantee, the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus alone brings peace with God. Jesus alone brings access to God based not on what we have done or what we will do, but through his sacrifice on the cross and by the welcome of a loving father. But how do we know that? How do these first readers stepping away from everything they know, how do they know it's true? How do they know it's about Jesus? How do they know that God has accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice? How do they know that by coming to God, they will know him and gain eternity? Because it's all about the Son. He is the guarantee. He is your king priest. Jesus is better. I know this passage is wordy and there's lots in it which we don't get. But do you see it? Do you see what the writer's doing here? Isn't the Bible wonderful? Isn't God wonderful? Melchizedek this person we know so little about. But all those years earlier, through him, God would show what his son would be like. Through Melchizedek, God got to show his wonderful plan for salvation throughout all time and history. And isn't Jesus wonderful? You see, as I read this book, as I read through, I think, yeah, I need a king. I need one who fights for justice and rules in righteousness, like of him we read in Psalm 110. I need a king. But then I think, no, I need a priest. I need a priest who can bring me to God, who can make peace for me with God because I'm sinful. No, what I need is a priest. But then I need a king. I need a king who is exalted above the heavens like we read about here. 
But then I need a priest who will intercede for me before that throne in the heavens. And I need a king who will conquer, who will come back in victory and take me to eternity. And I need a priest who will continue forever in that role. I need a king priest. Praise God for Jesus Christ, the son, the king priest. And whoever you are and whatever you are going through at the moment, whether like the readers who are first reading it or the problems of today, you need a king priest too. And only Jesus Christ will suffice. Everything else fails and falls and was never supposed to be because Jesus Christ was, is better. It was always about the Son. Melchizedek was always a picture pointing forward to the pri king priest who would come and make all things right. The king of righteousness and peace who would come and give himself as a sacrifice, who would take my sin upon himself so that I could know forgiveness with God, peace with God, and eternity with him. That's the gospel. And you might not think we'd see it in Hebrews 7, but it's all there. Melchizedek points forward to the great high priest, our king priest, Jesus Christ. And only he will suffice because Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you. In it, you have revealed yourself. You have revealed your love. You have revealed your great plan of salvation for people. And you have revealed your son, Jesus Christ, our great king priest. Father, we thank you that that was always the plan. And Father, we thank you that that is just as much for these first readers as it is for us today. We need a king, but we need a priest. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, the Son, we have both. Father, will you so warm our hearts and thrill our hearts with your word. Help us to catch the excitement, the joy, your immense love for us in sending the Son. Father, let that inspire us as we go and share this wonderful Savior, our great high priest, with those we meet. Let Jesus Christ be exalted and lifted high in our lives and in our world. For his glory we pray. Amen.